Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 14 in our series on American history. In the last podcast, we started looking at and stoking the fires of the idea of what independence really meant to these very few rebellious British colonists. We saw the way that even though they quote unquote hadn't won a single battle yet, they were pumped with the fact that they were alive to fight another day. And that gave them the confidence to move forward with this idea of of independence. We looked at how over 400 pieces of writing from this time period contained the essential theme of explanation or slash justification. The major document that perpetuates this argument or theory of explanation is that Declaration of Independence, our cornerstone document. And we ended the podcast by just introducing why the about the Declaration of Independence, but looking at, too, that really nothing happened on July 4th. July 2nd is the day of universal acceptance among the founding fathers that were present in Independence Hall. But as I also expanded on, too, the fact that nobody was willing to sign it, of course, except for John Hancock, the president of the Congress, and then the secretary as well, the uh, congressional secretary who also threw his name on it. Other than that, between Hancock and Charles Thompson, nobody was willing to step forward and sign it. And then we ended with a brief discussion of the explanation of what a true 21-gun salute is. So today, let's expand on what also the Declaration of Independence means to Americans, what it is, but also what it isn't. So let's start with the first that is a in a kidding way, ended that podcast saying, if you ever hired a lawyer and presented your case and the lawyer said, oh my gosh, were your uh, rights trampled on, that spells right out there in the Declaration of Independence what your um, what your rights are. and We're going to defend it on that. Well, that's when you find another lawyer, maybe somebody with an actual law degree, because the Declaration of Independence back in the summer of 1776, all the way through to the 21st century, there is nothing legally enforceable about it. There is nothing in that document that's going to win you a case in any court of law anywhere in the United States, from our lowest level court all the way up to our United States Supreme Court. What the document was, was a statement of intent and a defense of the idea of free government. And yes, woven throughout that document is this sense of explanation or justification for the actions that the rebels were taking. In fact, when I mentioned that it's a statement of intent slash defense of free government, look at the first six sentences, and specifically the very first six words. It starts with when. 
expanding on that, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one group of people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. But the sentence begins with when. Sentence two begins with we. Sentence three and four begins with that and that again. Sentence five begins with prudence. And section and sentence six begins with the word but. In other words, those five prior sentences where Thomas Jefferson reflected the mindset of the founding fathers in defense of free government, the rest of that document, fully a two-thirds of it, really is a litany of abuses that King George III has been trampling on. Notice again who I said that the founding fathers were zeroing in on, not Parliament, not the English people, not the other British colonists elsewhere around the world. No, they're hanging their blame squarely around the neck of one individual. And that was the extremely overweight with the boyish face and unbelievable uh, mesmerizing blue eyes of King George III, a man that by far wanted to be an artist more than he ever wanted to be king or a politician. That's who they were blaming. That's the reason why I foreshadowed two podcasts ago when I said that that Olive Branch petition was sent out, but notice it was not addressed to Parliament. It was addressed specifically to the king. They wanted to see the king turn them down. They wanted to see the king reject them because that paved the way for the rebels to reject, therefore, the king. You have cast us aside. In your denying of that petition, now in our document, we are casting you aside. But defending our right to do it and listing the abuses that you have engaged in in the past several decades, which of course meant too that it was King George III's predecessors, George II and George I. But please note that really, that's it. In the entire Revolutionary War era, not one new insight into political theory was proposed. Not one. That's what the Declaration of Independence is proposing is not is nothing. It's simply stating the defense of what they had enjoyed for the past several centuries. That's what they're doing. They're not trying to postulate a brand new form of government. These aren't the Greek thinkers that came up with six new forms of government during their time. This isn't Charlemagne coming up with a brand new form of government called the theocratic monarchy as he did on Christmas Day, 800 AD. No, they're simply trying to defend what they had had all along. But if you, any of you have ever taken or will take a class in political science called political theory, you'll study all of the political revolutions in world history and the new forms of government that came out of it. But you're not going to study the Revolutionary War for that reason. Yes, we will come up with this idea of a constitutional democracy. But again, the idea of a constitution and a democracy was not new. And right now, these rebels have no idea what form of government they're going to take on. All they know is what they don't want. And that is the continuing leadership of King George III. What we also do see in the document, though, is the ideals 
of an American society that were outlined. And that's the reason, again, I stress that the revolutionaries were not fighting for new rights as much as they were trying to preserve old rights. This is the reason why the document was an international cry for help. That's the reason that the document was written for the royal families to read more so than even the British colonists in North America. Clearly, it was written for everybody. But the audience that Jefferson and the boys had in mind were the monarchies of France, Portugal, and Spain. Please note, too, as oftentimes is mistakenly believed, the separation of religion and state also is not seen in the Declaration of Independence. It will also not be seen even in the Constitution of the United States, which will come 13 years later. The idea of separation of religion and state, think again. Look at the back of currency and coins still to this day, invoking gods and our trust in God. Look at our own capital, Washington, D.C. Here's a little bit of trivia that you can stop after I ask the question and try to think on this for a moment. But when the sun rises in the east and its rays begin to start settling onto Washington, D.C. proper, our seat of our federal government, the very first set of sun's rays falls on what object? If you want to pause it here and think about that. This object is the reason why no other structures in Washington, D.C. can be taller than it. And that, of course, if you haven't guessed already, is the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument at 10 stories high is that tall, not because for security reasons, no building can be taller than that. We've mythically come to believe that for security reasons of the president, the first family, and other Washington and international dignitaries that come through Washington, D.C. on a regular basis, that for security purposes, no building is taller than 10 stories. That is not the case. Nothing is taller than Washington, D.C. in Washington, D.C. because nothing can be taller than our monument to our true founding father and first president, George Washington. So the sun's rays fall onto the Washington Monument, and obviously common sense would dictate that it falls on the very top of the monument and then warms the monument as the sun continues to rise. The fact of the matter, though, is that the capstone of the Washington Monument obviously has four sides. And the side that faces the sun has the Latin inscription, Laus Deo, God's work. So once again, we even have God being the first word that the sun's rays sets on in our nation's capital through to the 21st century. Please note, too, that this is the first time the United States of America is used in any of our what is eventually known to be our domestic or national documents. And then also what will come out of this time from the Founding Fathers is our first outline of what our own national flag would look like. And surprise, surprise, it also has the same three colors as the British flag. No, not because we're trying to somewhat be like them but because the three colors of our own flag are the three most common colors used throughout the world, throughout history. And that, of course, is red, white, and blue. 
So it really is where flag doesn't stand out color-wise at all. Uh, I, simply for curiosity's sake, flags that have a predominant color of green in them tend to be Muslim countries, the countries where Islam is the official religion. If you see uh, uh, flags with a lot of yellow in them or all yellow with designs on them, that generally tends to be island nations. And the flag color that is least used, anybody want to take a guess out there? Yes, you driving in the 2019 Ford Focus, you got it. That is, of course, the color black, which is generally used by pirates, rebels, and you guessed it, ISIS. Final word, though, on our uh, Declaration of Independence is also to give credit where credit's due. And I'm not here to take credit away from anybody. Thomas Jefferson is the one that penned the words of the Declaration of Independence. I'm not here to, to, to dispel that, that that is true. However, a majority of the documents, the copies that we see, really were not written in Jefferson's hand. They were copied word for word by Timothy Matlock, an individual who was not of the founding fathers group, but had much better than most people's uh, calligraphy or handwriting that would be easily able to be read. However, those, those are Jefferson's words. So, why does Jefferson get the credit for this? Well, he didn't want it, but he also he didn't want it because he didn't want to write out this long document of ideas that people that the founding fathers were kicking uh, around and batting back and forth in Independence Hall, especially the list of abuses and usurpations that King George III was being accused of. No, he didn't want to. So why did he? Because he was the youngest in the group. He drew the short straw simply by being the youngest. The job was largely left to him. So that's how Jefferson came to be the author. Author also implies though, that the ideas were his. Yes, many of them were. But Jefferson had a fiery temper. It kind of went, if you will, with his red hair. It kind of went hand in hand there. Jefferson was one that did not like to be corrected. He could be easily offended. He was an extremely shy individual. He abhorred the idea of talking in, in front of large groups of people. He would naturally stay away from discussions where more than three people were gathered. He liked generally speaking to one, two, maybe three people at most. So when he was more or less drawing the short straw or everybody's pointing at him to put Quill to, to the to paper, if you will, or parchment, he really didn't rebuff it. Is is yes, he was somewhat angered that he didn't have a say, but he went ahead and took the responsibility in stride. But what the founding fathers didn't know is that Jefferson wanted to put the words of others into his own words. That's where Jefferson's fiery temper became a problem. The Declaration of Independence could not be perceived or interpreted as this being written by an angry group of people that were not thinking, that simply woke up one morning, were bored, and decided to take up arms against the world's most powerful army, navy, and the largest economy. It had to look as though the Founding Fathers thought this through. And sometimes Jefferson's fiery language got in the way. But any time that somebody attempted to criticize Jefferson or politely correct him, he could be known 
to take the parchment, scroll it up, and walk out of there and be done for an hour or done for the day. If this keeps up, this document's not going to be written for quite some time. The only man that seemed to have the ability to temper Jefferson down and still keep him seated and working was none other than John Adams, to the point that during the Revolutionary period, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, it is argued to believe that they were the best of friends, that there were no two founding fathers that were closer to one another, that could read one another's minds and predict what the other one might say without the other feeling offended or getting their toes stepped on. They were truly the best of friends, again, during the Revolutionary period. But when those British ships sailed away for the final time, that's when the differences between John Adams' perception of what government should be and Thomas Jefferson surfaced and surfaced with a vengeance. You see, Jefferson's language is in the Declaration of Independence, but it is tempered by John Adams as well, to the point that some argue, some historians argue, that the authors really should be Adams as well as Jefferson. But I want to focus quickly here as we round off our discussion here on the Declaration of Independence, on the fact that on that day, July 4th, 1776, when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson literally looked everyone in the eye in the group and asked, do you want any other revisions to this document? Are you satisfied with it as is? And it was a unanimous yes from everybody that the two men shook hands and agreed that that piece of par parchment would now go to the printers. The two closest of friends forged one of the most notorious documents in world history. Nobody could have predicted then how bitter enemies they ultimately would become. Because when the, when the British ships sailed away and we eventually forged what became known or would become known as a constitutional democracy, it was then that John Adams had the mindset of today's Democrats and Thomas Jefferson had the mindset of today's Republicans. As bitter sometimes as our political life is in this country, if you really listen to candidates running for almost any major office, rarely is there disagreement on what the problems are. The disagreement generally surfaces about how to resolve that problem. Should it be a state-issued remedy, or should the remedy come out of Washington, D.C.? Democrats generally tend to re to favor a stronger central government with the answers coming out of Washington, D.C. Republicans generally tend to favor a state response to be able to handle the problems state by state rather than a federal response. That's who John Adams and Thomas Jefferson ultimately became. And that's why they would become the most bitter of enemies. But I really cannot agree when I hear some historians say that the blame belongs to both. It really is far more Jefferson than Adams. Because John Adams, as we know, succeeded George Washington to become our second president of the United States. The Federalist mindset or Democratic mindset from George Washington in his first two terms, his two terms, as well as John Adams' one term, that was 12 years of a Federalist or Democratic mindset. But with the way the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution that we'll discuss later, because 
John Adams got the most votes. After Washington stepped down, he became president. But the person with the second most votes became vice president, in this case, Thomas Jefferson. Using a modern example, if we had not modified that constitution with what became known as the 12th Amendment, can you imagine Donald Trump winning in 2016 and Hillary Clinton being his vice president? Sure. Oh, yeah, that would have gone over great. Or in 2000, George W. Bush wins the presidency and Al Gore therefore becomes the vice president. I mean, you talk about sowing the seeds of gridlock. That's one area where the founding fathers clearly dropped the ball. But we understand their thinking, or at least we will as I discuss it when we get to the discussions on the Constitution. But as John Adams' vice president, Thomas Jefferson pulled the rug out from John Adams any time he had the opportunity. John Adams, he supported George Washington every step of the way. Even when John Adams himself didn't agree with it, Adams supported Washington because Washington was president. Adams had that character and wherewithal. Thomas Jefferson did not. As a result, when John Adams left office to give office to who? To be unseated by who? To be made a one-term president by who? None other than Thomas Jefferson? It's the reason why he will become the first of two presidents to skip out of Washington, D.C. and the the night of inauguration, the eve of inauguration, so he doesn't have to stand the humiliation and watch the man that defeated him take the oath of office. And there they became bitter enemies, as John Adams would write in the major newspapers criticizing President Jefferson's every move, even when Jefferson left office after two terms. Adams and Jefferson continued to go to battle with one another through the newspapers, through any form of public media, to the point that as the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, which is entrenched in American psyche by this point, as it being July 4th, as that 50th anniversary rolled around, both men were invited by, by several organizations and universities and state houses throughout the country to come and speak to whoever would be there to listen to one of the original founding fathers when so few were left. John Adams' only criteria about where he would speak was the same as Thomas Jefferson's. As long as the other one won't be anywhere within my eyesight, I will accept. But John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, yes, they did do some light correspondence near the end of their lives, but the rage and the anger remained with them to the end. To the point that if this is not proof that their God has a sense of humor, that on the late afternoon of July 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary, John Adams was breathing his last His son, ironically enough, the sixth president of the United States, was able to rush home to Massachusetts to be able to be with his father. And at around 5 p.m. on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, John Adams was breathing his last. And at a moment when everyone in the room thought that the second president had died, he had a wind of energy, opened his eyes, looked at his son, squeezed his hand, and his last words were, Jefferson still lives. That is, his son recounted his father seemed to be saying with seething anger. 
And then the president closed his eyes and his head rolled to the side. Our second president was gone. Word ran out that the second president of the United States, John Adams, was dead. And as the system known as the Night Riders that that once Paul Revere was a part of was traveling south with the news, horseback men were riding in the Night Rider system coming north with the news that the president had died. Can you imagine the two members of the Knight Rider system when they approached one another from opposite directions that the president had died. How could somebody in the South have known that if the news was just coming South? And that's when the two men looked at one another and said, the president, Thomas Jefferson, no, the president, John Adams. It turns out they were both right. When John Adams in his last breath had said Jefferson still lives, Adams was wrong because Thomas Jefferson had died just five hours earlier. Can you imagine the two of them leaving this earth, leaving the United States of America, both of them on this exact day of the 50th anniversary of a signing of our declaration? Ironically enough, we have two other dates in the regular calendar of when two presidents have died on the same day, March 8th and December 26th. But what we do not have is any day in the calendar year when three presidents have died. And actually, we have one, once again, July 4th. Because exactly five years later, on the 55th signing anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, another founding, the last, one of the last founding fathers would die, James Monroe. So we have two presidents that have died on December 8th, December 26th, and March 8th. We only have one day out of the entire year where we lost a pre three presidents, and they were all founding fathers. Ironically enough, that will also be the birthday of a future president by the name of Calvin Coolidge. So that's our, okay, admittedly, winded discussion there on the impact of the Declaration of Independence, what it is, what it was, what it still is today. But we now need to start turning our attention to this burgeoning unrest within the British colonies of North America that will become known in American history textbooks as the American Revolution. But before we can actually get to the next battle within this eventually eight-year conflict, we need to unpack that very word in the definition, revolution. Was it a revolution or wasn't it? You see, there's a man, a close colleague of mine when I taught in Chicago, that to the day that I left Moraine Valley Community College, he refused to refer to this conflict as the American Revolution. Because in this beyond knowledgeable history professor's mind, there was nothing revolutionary about it. As he said, Chris, look at your own Declaration of Independence. You flat out said that nothing new was proposed. Then why do we know it as the American Revolution? And why do I in my hearts fully believe that that's all it could have been? was a revolution. And when we do that, 
We're going to start out with the next podcast by defining revolution and looking at the only historian arguably to date, a man by the name of Dr. Crane Brinton in his book called The Anatomy of a Revolution. Yeah, that sounds like a New York Times bestseller list contestant, doesn't it? Yeah, in his book, The Anatomy of a Revolution, where he looked at every political revolution in world history and said that every one of them goes through the exact same stages, except for one. And you'd never guess which one that is. And that's what we'll begin by discussing that in our next podcast. So thank you very much for listening today. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. Please read my blogs as well, especially if you have insomnia. Leave me some comments on that to let me know what your thoughts are. Any book recommendations you have, please send those my way as well. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review on whatever format that you're listening to this. Have a great day. Thank you.